Fighting Through Podcast, episode 86, featuring the Mighty Eighth Podcast. More great unpublished history. Hello again, and another exciting World War II welcome to the Fighting Through Second World War podcast. I'm Paul Cheel, son of Bill Cheel, whose World War II memoirs have been published by Pen and Sword in Fighting Through, from Dunkirk to Hamburg. The aim of this podcast is to read family stories, memoirs and interviews with veterans in all the countries and all the forces. I dare you to listen. I am so chuffed with the material I've got lined up for you in the coming weeks. Uh, Firstly, after a lot of work, I finished narrating the audio book, Save the Last Bullet. And next episode, I'm going to be giving you a sneak preview of it, based on the now published book about the German boy soldier you first heard about in episode 69. So, So that's Save the Last Bullet. And today... I'm bringing you a preview of a brand new podcast all about the United States Air Force in the guise of the Mighty Eighth and their role in Britain during the war. As a prelude, I'm going to chat with Johan, one of the hosts. So in the same way as I've done on other occasions, I'm guesting episode one of the Mighty Eighth directly onto the Fighting Through feed. And I thank regular contributors to the show, Derek Whittle from Manchester, for bringing this excellent podcast to my attention. I'm also working on an episode on a Green Howard's memoir I've stumbled upon with insights into Sicily and more from soldier Alf Blackburn. More on that soon. For now... Over to the Mighty Eighth podcast, which tells the story of people, planes and places of the United States Eighth Army Air Force during World War II. Arriving in England in 1942, the USAAF Eighth Army Air Force was the biggest air armada of all time, capable of sending thousands of planes on a single mission. Co-hosted by UK-based journalist Johan Tasker and military historian Mike Peters, who both live in Suffolk, UK, this podcast tells the story of the Mighty Eighth. Here's host Johan Tasker to talk to me, and I offer him a warm fighting through World War II welcome. I started by asking Johan about his background and how the pod got started. Well, I'm an I'm an agricultural journalist, believe it or not, Paul. And uh, this idea came about during lockdown. I was right. going for walks. So I was quite there wasn't much to do, and as I was doing my walks around my local village, um, you get bored, and then you go further and further afield. And I ended up sort of walking around airfields and encountering memorials, and there were sort of memorials that I'd seen time and time before but never never really taken too much notice of them and um i put a post on social media wanting to talk to farmers who farmed land uh, where the airfields were 
And uh, one of the, I, I got a really good response because I think a lot of these airfields, they came from farmland. They've been, been returned to agriculture. And I think a lot of farmers see themselves as custodians of, uh, of the airfields and, uh, and what, what happened there. But one farmer said to me, he said, you, you, you need to get in touch with, uh, with uh, my near neighbor, Mike Peters. He's a, he's a military historian. Yeah. And um, so I contacted Mike and um, I sort of, we, we got chatting and we hit it off. And I said, I'd like to do a podcast or something about, about the mighty eighth. And um, that's really where the idea came from. So Mike and I started out um, doing these episodes and he's, he's really, Mike's the expert. He, yeah. He's the expert and I'm the lay person. I think you're good at asking educated questions for what it's worth. So you don't, you don't I, come across as a total numbskull by any stretch. <laughs> the thing is, I, I've spent months and months researching this stuff and just reading about it because I think the more you read about it, the more fascinating it is. And for me, it's, a, it's about the people and they had such a huge impact. People yeah. talk about the special relationship between Americans and Brits. And I think in this instance, they're really, really is a special relationship for the people and the families, the yeah. second and third generations who are now coming back and, uh, and the people in Eastern England welcoming them back with, with, with open arms. Yeah. About two thirds of our listeners, um, about 60% of our listeners, two thirds are, are, are in the States. And, um, you know, it's a real privilege to be able to do stuff and then have it listened to thousands of, of miles away. And all of this stuff is on our doorsteps. And I drove, drove up the road to Norwich, been driving up and down the road to, to Norwich. I've been in East Anglia for 20 years. Yeah. And I often pass the, the sign for the 100th Bomb Group Museum. And uh, I never went there until six months ago. And when I went there and saw it, it was absolutely fascinating the stories that are in there the people that served and yes. the memorabilia and you know these really are special places because a lot of these airfields they're the last place that people who gave their lives they're the last place that they stood on earth and, yes. you, and it's not like you can go and visit a battlefield yeah. because the battlefield's in in the sky so it's different to sort of land-based warfare yeah and uh, and i think that's what makes them special what I like particularly about what I've heard so far is how you, you've gone into pretty minute detail about the whole way they lived, trained, fought, and, and everything about their lives. And so for anybody who's got a relative who was connected with all that, it, it's just a perfect um, podium for them to, you know, to read about and to understand what was going on with their relative. Tell me a bit about Mike Peters' background, your, your historian colleague. Mike himself, um, he was uh, in the UK Army Air Corps, so he flew on helicopters as, as, as a gunner himself. So he's actually lived and breathed this stuff, albeit in a, in a different generation. I, I mean, we're sort of similar, similar ages. And... Um, and it's fascinating because he, he, he can actually relate to it or, or impart that knowledge, you know, that, that, that he's got. And he sees it very much from that, uh, that perspective, but also a very human perspective as yeah. well. 
he is a, a battlefield guide as well. So he 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 does uh, he guided tours of um, of battlefields, and uh, he's also a published author. So he's, he has a special interest in uh, in glider uh, in glider forces, and has recently written a book, co-written a book with Paul Bingley um, about uh, Ridgewell, which is one of the uh, one of the airfields that we will be visiting as well in this series. So he really knows his stuff, and he's he's sort of lived it and breathed it, albeit in a different generation. Um, but he has a sort of particular expertise and also an a, a affinity for the for the people who who fought and the people who served. So I think we, you know, it's a good combination of my, uh, I don't know, educated ignorance, as it were, and, and, and his expertise. And what we try to do is we try to sort of keep it simple and uh, talk about it in terms that, uh, that, that people will find interesting but also understandable. So we sort of try not to assume any knowledge but really sort of get to the detail of of, of what's happening and yeah. uh, uh, and i think that's what makes it what that, that's why it works as a podcast what what is it about the eighth that makes them so special i, I think the sheer um I, I think what they actually did i mean from arriving in england in 1942 with a few planes over the next couple of years they they became what was the biggest air armada of all time. So nothing like it had ever been seen before and nothing like it has, has ever been seen since. So there were sort of 200,000 people here with more than 2,000 heavy bombers, these four-engine bombers, yeah. and they could, they could get them in the sky all at once and target occupied Europe. And uh, I think that it's that whole logistical exercise and, and also the... The, the sheer cost in terms of human life that uh, that, um, that 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 was expended. So twenty six thousand yes. war dead and, and missing in action. So it's an amazing story. Gosh, two hundred thousand Americans over in East Anglia. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, two hundred thousand. I mean, there were there were more. If, um, there were more in terms of the numbers of people that were here. Um, going over for Operation Overlord and for, for D-Day. But, yeah. yeah, yeah, wow. Okay. Um, how many episodes you, have you got planned in the near future? We're looking initially to do 10, and then we're going right. to take a break because we found it really, really exhausting to actually plan <laughs> all these episodes. <laughs> and, um, and we've both got day jobs as well. Yeah. So yeah. It, it, it's, it, it, it takes a lot of planning and we recorded the second one that we recorded by the end of it. We, we spent a whole morning, uh, at, uh, Parham Airfield Museum and we were shattered at the end of it because you're just trying to think about what you're saying and make it interesting and, yeah. and, and looking after the technical aspects. So we're looking to do 10 and then we'll take yeah. a break, but. And then maybe. Not- would you think then have you scoped what the 10 are going to be about a little bit a little bit yeah. i mean we'd like to go to, we're going to go to the american cemetery at maddingley and uh, and hopefully record an episode there i think one of the things that we'd really like to do is look at it from the other angle as well so uh, the first episode is all about the bombing mission uh, over rouen in france and yeah. we, one of the things we'd like to do is uh, speak to a French historian and look at it 
from the French receiving end. What was it like to be bombed? Uh, even, even though they were our allies, they were occupied and, uh, and their town, their city got bombed. What was that like? And we would like to do the same in Germany as well. So wow. uh, to, to sort of show the, show the story, do the story from, from, from all sides. That would be terrific. Fabulous. And then if there's a, a season two beyond that, would that be about the eighth, do you think? It will it will be about it will be about the eighth. So the whole of this the whole of this series will be yeah. about the eighth yeah. Air Force. Um, you wouldn't right call it the mighty eighth otherwise, would you? You'd call it the mighty eighth, etc. or something. We did, we did struggle with the name. We talked, you know, and in the in the end, um I thought, well, you know, it was difficult to decide what to call it and I thought, well, why not just say what it is and it is about the mighty eight so yeah. i thought we'd call it well, the mighty eight podcast that's good and i love your artwork by the way simplicity in the, the essence of simplicity with no words just the picture but that tells us you, anybody who likes aeroplanes they'll just oh well that'll do me <laughs> come straight we went, in we, for it and and that was we we recorded the first episode and we realized we haven't got a photo of either us together of us oh. together so Maybe that will change, but yeah, yeah but it will probably uh, be the background. Good. Well, all I can say is good luck with the rest of the season, Johan, and um, I'm sure it's going to work out well for you. Really, your kind. historian colleague. What's the? Just remind me of the book he's got out. The book that Mike's written is called Bomb Group: The Eighth Air Forces, Three Eighty First, and the Allied. Air offensive over Europe, and that's written by another uh, another military historian called Paul Bingley. Yeah, and they've written it in tandem. They've written it in tandem. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. So again, uh, I think Paul has Paul has told the story about the people, and Mike has uh, done the um, well as they as a, Mike Mike's done the. The, the military aspect of it, the, 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 the bigger picture sort of stuff. Okay. All right. Excellent. Okay, Johan, well, we'll we said this was going to be a, just a, a quick catch-up to uh, set the scene, so I, I think we've probably done that. So we'll, we'll say um, toodle-pip <laughs> and uh, speak to you again soon. Thank you very much. Thanks very much for your great. time. Appreciate it. That's it. You're more than welcome. Thank you. Many thanks again, Johan. That was fascinating stuff indeed. And I will apologise for the quality of the sound on that recording. It was down to some technical difficulties um, caused by me. Um, We're now going to hear episode one of the Mighty Eight podcast called The Bomb Run. And in this first episode, hosts Mike and Johan visit Grafton Underwood in England, where B-17 bombers took to the skies for the very first America-led mission over occupied Europe. It's a long intro, but my, what a great scene setter and a bit of history thrown in about what was the very first mission of the 8th to bomb railway marshalling yards at Rouen in France. Enjoy. There's four of them, one o'clock high. 
announcement was issued early this morning by the United States Army Air Corps, European Theater of Operations, and the Air Ministry. United States Army Air Force's Flying Fortresses, B-17s, escorted by Royal Air Force, Dominion, and Allied fighters, made a high-altitude attack upon the railway marshalling yards at Rouen late yesterday afternoon. The attack was successful, all fortresses releasing their entire bomb loads on the target. Enemy pursuit planes were encountered and one was shot down by a gunner of a flying fortress. Brigadier General Ira C. Eaker, commanding General United States Army Air Force Bomber Command, led the attack in a fortress. Meanwhile, other escorted fortresses were conducting diversional operations. All of the fortresses returned safely. Two escorting fighters are missing. Welcome to the Mighty Eighth Podcast with me, Johan Tasker, and military historian Mike Peters. Season 1, The Bomb Run. You've just heard the official joint statement by the US and UK governments following the first American-led bombing mission over occupied Europe during World War II. And you join us in the very place those B-17 bombers took to the skies 80 years ago on August 17, 1942, for that very first mission. We're standing in the middle of what was runway number one, the main runway at Grafton Underwood Airfield in Northamptonshire, eastern England. Those flying fortresses belong to the 97th Bomb Group of the United States 8th Army Air Force, what was to become the greatest air armada in history. And in this podcast series, we'll be telling the story of the Mighty Eighth, discovering with you the people, the planes and the places who sacrificed so much in the fight for freedom. Mike, in many ways, this is hallowed ground, isn't it? It certainly is. I mean, this is Station 106, so this is one of the very first airfields given over 
by the UK government to the US Army Air Force, newly formed as it was. And uh, when uh, Ira Ika and his recce group arrive here in the February of 1942, this is one of the first sites they come to. Um, although it's not really finished and as you know the, the nickname for the place given by the Amer- first of the 3,000 Americans who came here was Grafton Under Mud but it does see a procession of the early units of the US Army Air Force arriving in UK via Iceland or however they've got here operating out of here then going somewhere else until it's really fully established but it's quite a thing now to be stood here almost to the hour of the first raid on the spot in the middle of the main runway yeah, it's quite incredible, isn't it? And although the planes have long gone and the runway here has been planted with trees, you don't have to look very far at all to see traces of the Mighty Eighth. And the village, when we came through it, when we drove through it, the village of Grafton Underwood, it's much the same as it was 80 years ago. A handful of thatched limestone cottages. And amid the trees where we are now, about half a mile from the main village, is this stone memorial dedicated to those airmen, those aircrew who flew from here. It's about eight foot tall, a black and pink granite obelisk standing on a plinth by the side of the Geddington Road. And if we look behind the obelisk, we can see a small garden of remembrance with some neatly trimmed bushes and two flagpoles, one American flying the stars and stripes and one British flying the Union flag. Mike, if we read the words engraved in gold on this monument, they tell us the first and last bombs dropped by the 8th Air Force were from airplanes flying from Grafton Underwood. Although this significant memorial is really to the 384th Heavy Bomb Group, it does mark a significant airfield that stands out in amongst the whole narrative and chronologic timeline of the 8th Air Force in England. And why Grafton Underwood then? Why would they build an airfield here? Well, all of the airfields that are given over initially in 1942 to the US Army Air Force are RAF. They're built for the RAF. And this one was uh, work on it here started in 1941 and was still ongoing in 42. And they're built to bomb Germany, which is great. You think, oh, that's pretty logical. But the pre-war doctrine before Britain started rearming was that France would still be in the fight. Belgium would still be in the fight and the Netherlands would still be in the fight. So we would be bombing from the east side of England into Germany, uh, not, not bombing into what would become occupied Europe. So that was the logic. And when the when Ica and his guys first get here, it's OK, you can have these airfields, these are available. And it's interesting that when Ira Ica and his recce group start to move around the country, they rapidly realise that the RAF are deeply embedded in Lincolnshire and Bomber County and and, and Northamptonshire and all this area. And he wants to keep his air traffic away from RAF bomber traffic just for pure air traffic management reasons. But also, he he wants to extend the range of his aircraft. Daylight precision bombing depends on reaching into Germany with these mass formations we're going to talk about later. So he realises East Anglia is the place he needs to be. So although the first bomber bombing air division is up here and around Northampton and we see those triangles on the shape of the aircraft for them really the centre of mass will become East Anglia but that's not yet we're here in 1942 uh, in the summer of 42 and that's all yet to come so that's why it's it's quite quite moving to be here on, on this day this date to talk about the very first raid and we call it the first raid don't we but there had been raids 
before this. This was the first American raid, but there had been Americans involved in bombing occupied Europe before this particular day. Explain that. Yeah, you're right, because Ica, he's very, very important at this stage, and he is he's an Anglophile. He's, he gets on really well with the Brits. He's a very quiet, taciturn Texan, and he's well-mannered, and he understands the British psyche, etc. So he forms a really close, almost symbiotic relationship with Bomber Harris and the, the Brits. And he says the Brits have given us everything we've asked for, accommodation, fuel, expertise access to their secret equipment and uh, so he part of that process is also getting his airmen his guys who've never seen combat before and have no concept of fighting the, the Luftwaffe into the air and one of the things they do is put observers into British bombers with RAF crews to go on raids and experience what it's like and from here at Grafton Underwood and Polbrook that that's activity takes place and it's not big Schweinfurt scale B-17 raids or B-24 raids we're using Boston's and the, and the first raid, the first American air crew to fly into occupied airspace don't do it with a white star on their aircraft. They do it in RAF Boston light bombers. And that happens from here. So as, as early as the, the 29th of June, 1942, um, Captain Charles Kegelman flew on a Boston raid into occupied France uh, with, uh, it, with 12 RAF Bostons who were bombing Hazelbrook. So he goes and experiences that. No incident. He comes back unscathed and thinks okay this is okay and then later we progress to the 4th of july of all days independence day where the uh, the americans take off with um, six borrowed bostons and take place in a raid on dutch airfields they lose one so one goes down in flames so that's their debut really and uh, kegelman is wounded and uh, so one, one one aircraft's missing in action so that's a welcome to the realities of of the air war over occupied europe quite literally a baptism by fire almost literally yeah it's interesting because that would be that's a daylight raid this is the raf doing light daylight raids still in in, in 1942 and the fighter sweeps are going on so the war is is changing and the americans have got this almost zealous belief in daylight precision bombing they can't wait to get going and but they need the aircraft to do that and that's going to be initially the b-17 model e's and model f's initially and it'll be f's that fly from here so we're going to talk about the difference in strategies between the RAF and the United States Army Air Force a little bit later on. I mean, it's obviously symbolic that 4th of July raid mm. chosen to be Independence Day. But they were under a lot of pressure to get things off the ground properly and do their own all-American-led mission using their own B-17 planes to show they were capable of doing it themselves and show the folks back home that they could be successful. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and there's a lot of politics because there's, there's internal politics in America between the US Army Air Force and the Army, because until earlier that year, they'd been the Army Air Corps and tightly controlled by the Army. Pearl Harbor does them a favour. It's like, OK, we're going to get into this bombing offensive game and we're going to we need to be separate. We're going to be the Army Air Force and uh, we're going to do this away from the Army although we'll still be technically part of the Army. And they need to prove that it works. They'd, and also externally, Bomber Harris and Churchill have got their eyes on this new Air Force whenever it, is. it hasn't really arrived yet, but they've got their eyes on thinking the Americans are going to produce all these aircraft and we're going to... I think if they were to join the night offensive and alongside the RAF, we'll have real, real bombing power and it will take the war to the Germans much faster. And Churchill and particularly Harris and the rest of the RAF portal as well, the head of the Royal Air Force, they don't believe in daylight bombing. The RAF have tried it to, and lost big style over 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 Germany in daylight so they say this is futile this is a waste of resources a waste of inexperienced aircrew you really should just 
either help us with bombing submarine pens and chasing submarines out the Atlantic while you learn the ropes, or just invest in the in the, the night offensive. So, Ica, Doolittle, Spatz, um, Hap Arnold, all these American commanders who are essentially, to varying degrees, disciples of uh, Billy Mitchell and believe in this, have to prove it, and they have to prove it soon. So they're literally chomping at the bit to get this raid off the ground and to hit hit some German targets in daylight with the B-17, with the Norden bomb site, and say, hey, we can fight our way across occupied Europe through the air and we can do this. This, this, this is going to work. So you said that this, is, this would be the, um, the middle of the runway, of the main runway from where the planes yeah. took off. There's a steady trickle of uh, cars and people arriving, coming to see what it's all about. And if we look at the War Memorial, there's a small wooden cross with the words, we will never forget, in remembrance, Rouen, August 17, 1942. Also Schweinfurt and Regensburg, August the 17th, 1943. The Schweinfurt and Regensburg missions we'll cover in a future podcast. But for now, Mike, I mean, it must have been quite something for the Americans to come here. Completely different landscape to what they were used to back home. Yeah, we tend to think of young Americans from Detroit or New York, but of course there were people from the Midwest who were farmers and people like that who, some of them from New England, recognise the terrain or, or team, it feels familiar. But for many, it's just the, the standard of living. You know, the, they, the, they get all that indoctrination about how to behave around the British and how to not to brag, not to this, and you know, outside toilets are normal in the UK, this kind of thing. But, you know, if you're here and you believe in what you're doing, it's, it's a massive adventure. If you're, if you're air crew, you've probably flown here, uh, you know, over the Atlantic. If you're, uh, if you're ground crew, you've probably come on, a, on the Queen Mary or one of the cruise liners and into Scotland or, or Liverpool and then come down by train and then been picked up by road transport and brought here, usually at night, into the middle of nowhere. And if you're here at uh, Grafton Undermud, as, it was, as they called it, you know, the, the, the runways were too short initially. It had been built for lighter bombers. So when it's decided that there will be B-17s here, they decide they need to extend the runways. So a Type A runway is, the main runway is 6,000 yards long and the subsidiary runways are 4,500 and 3,000. So, and they form a, a triangular shape, as you know. So we're, we're in the middle of what was the main runway. It's a huge undertaking and it's the UK PLC that foots the bill. The Americans pay a percentage of this, but it's part of the British rearmament process and the design and... and actual construction which is contracted out is is all done by british contractors later in the war american engineers will become involved certainly around where we've driven up from today from suffolk you you, you'd see a lot or norfolk you'd see a lot of that Uh, but initially these these pre-wartime airfields are a significant investment uh, by the uk and the americans who arrive at grafton underwood these are this is not a pre-war permanent airfield a lot of the accommodation is wooden and canvas wooden frame with canvas covers this is you know even now in august we're we're feeling the chill a bit with the rain etc and the extremes of weather and we mentioned earlier about the june and july fourth raid these are all postponed due to rainy squalls etc which doesn't bode well when we get later on talk about bombing where if your whole doctrine is based around clear clear visibility, you know, suddenly you get here and you think, hey, maybe it's not going to be that straightforward. Well, straightforward it certainly wasn't. Everyone from that first Rouen raid returned safely to Grafton Underwood, but that wasn't always the case for the missions that followed. We're going to leave the airfield now and take a short drive to Grafton Underwood Village Church, the Church of St James the Apostle. And when we get there... 
we'll be able to discover some more about the people, the planes and the places of the Mighty Eighth. We've come to the village church at Grafton Underwood, the Church of St James the Apostle. It's a Gothic church, more than 700 years old, but there's a very special window here, a stained glass window designed by Brian Thomas in 1977. Mike, what are we looking at? Tell us about the window. This, to me, is a phys- physical evidence of this community viewing the presence of the Americans in a positive way and their contribution to the war. And if we look at it, it's three panels, multicoloured, I mean, the obvious centrepiece of it in glass is a a B-17G, noticeably, because it's got the chin turret. And prominent in the the right-hand pane is the tail plane of the aircraft with the triangular P for the 384th bomb group. So they were here the longest and they dominate the thinking of it. At the top, though, we can see right at the top in the centre, cross flags, Union flag and the Stars and Stripes, obviously, and then the squadrons, 544th, 545th, 46th, 47th. So the, the emblems of the, the four squadrons that made up the 346th bomb group. And then uh, the bomb group emblem is below the flags. And then we've got the, the B-17, which is really impressive. And uh, it's a silver one, it's not the green, it's the later, later model, silver, all metal finish. It's the G model with the chin turret, as I said earlier. So that, that really epitomises the later stages of the war when the 384th would have been here doing their business. And across that, below, below the uh, B-17, is, is a dedication. It says, this window is dedicated before God in remembrance of those who gave their lives for freedom during World War II while serving at Grafton Underwood from 1942 to 1945, especially the members of the 384th Bomb Group, brackets heavy, of the United States 8th Air Force. And there is... Interestingly, a Christian cross on the left and a Jewish star of David on the right. And then below that, two doves and the phrase, coming home. So it really does dominate. As we walked in, we, we noticed there was a, the bomb group flag with some unit citations hanging in from the ceiling above us. And the prayer cushions have all got American and British military cap badges and emblems on them. And there's a brass plaque here explaining the... Uh, the glass glass window, St James's Church. It says dedicated May the twenty first, nineteen eighty three. So that's quite a way after the war, isn't it? Designed by John Mack of Savannah, Georgia, USA. Full scale scale drawing by Brian Thomas, the studio in London, England. So it's an Anglo US project. And then the windows done by Peter Archer of Kings Langley in England. But the critical thing, donated by the three eighty fourth Bomb Group, United States Eighth Air Force, and the dedication is. It's the same dedication as on, on the grass about the, the, the window being dedicated to the, the, those who gave their lives at Grafton onwards. It's quite, a, it's quite an impressive thing for such a small church, isn't it? And, and you'd think that with uh, at its peak, I guess, 3,000 American airmen here in a small community of 100, 150 people, you'd think that the community would be swamped. But what this is telling us is that villagers very much took the Americans to their hearts. Yes, and, uh, and they'd be here the whole time. We, we tend to think about this little village, and there are 60 B-17s. How, far, how long take us to get here by car? Three, four minutes. So there are 60 B-17s, and they're not just taking off a raise. They're, they're testing their engines, they're doing training flights, they're doing test flights, etc. There's road traffic coming in and out, they're doing resupply, bringing in fuel, bringing in spares, taking guys out to railway stations to go on leave in London or wherever they're going. 
So this would be, they'd be omnipresent by day and by night. And of course, we, we read about the partying and, we, and the uh, GI brides and all. But there's more than that. You know, you, so many Americans were not that kind of person and would, would have come to church here on a Sunday. So it's such a church-orientated society in parts, or some of the states of America. That this, would, this would have been quite busy with Americans coming to the church, using the local facilities. They'd have been everywhere, jeeps on the road, etc. So I think when they went, it must have been really strange. It must have been a really eerie silence after they, they'd left the, the, the airfield and gone back to the States. You talk about jeeps, you talk about the B-17s, flying fortresses, high-tech pieces of equipment for their day to have 60 of them here in an agricultural community where most people would be farming the land still using literally horsepower rather than machinery it must have been quite something a real hive of activity yeah it's interesting you mentioned the farming side of it because so many of the 8th air force and 9th air force veteran accounts talk about guys who've been farmers back in the states and in the downtime, they go off and help with the harvest or work on the farms because they, they can work that they can work the equipment, they understand it. And not not the entire American farming industry is not mechanised. They've still got horses, etc. They they understand this. And one of those little details we tend to forget is most of these airfields have no fence. So they're porous. People can walk in and out of them. And older guys now who were school children at the time talk about, yeah, we used to go into the bomb dump. Yeah, we used to walk into the airfield. They'd go and see... The guys working on the stands, etc., would be adopted by them. They could go and get their, their gum and their chocolate, whatever they were doing, or just go and watch the aircraft. But to go back to your original point, this is cutting-edge technology. I mean, B-17, you know, 1935 to where we are now, 1945, the evolution of that aircraft, those, all those machine guns, the engines, the shiny aluminium and chrome all over it. I mean, it was, it would be like something from another world, yeah, and, and to see the big white star on it, etc., you know, you, you, they would occasionally see RAF heavy aircraft in daylight doing air tests, but Bomber Command is a, is a literally a fly-by-night organisation, isn't it? So they, you'd hear them go out to the targets and come, hopefully all come back. Uh, but the heartbeat of the village would be, I think, in synchronisation with the heartbeat of the station. The, 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 it's just so close and so omnipresent. And these airmen, and they would largely be men, Late teens, early 20s, certainly the majority of them under 30. Absolutely. And you hear, you read, most of the accounts talk about the oldest man in the crew was 23 and we called him Pops or Grandpa. You know, and the average age for a, a gunner, you know, those who are working on the gunners and the mechanics is 19. Uh, so it's a very young, uh, and it's quite a turn of, we talk about two or 3,000 people on an airfield. But they're not all staying. Some of them aren't coming back. They're even shot down, taken prisoner, whatever, uh, killed, uh, posted elsewhere, moving around. It's quite a fluid, amorphous organisation with people coming and going all of the time. So thousands of miles away from home then, people from all sorts of different backgrounds, from high-ranking officers to regular ground crew, air crew, and not all of them would come back. No, many, many won't. I mean, the, the, uh, as we'll talk about as we could go through the bomb run series, the, the attrition rate is staggering. You know, the, it's higher than the US Marine Corps in the island hopping campaign for the, for the Air Force. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's equivalent to the US infantry. And when you read the Luftwaffe accounts and the US 8th Air Force accounts of the air battles from 42 to 45, it's almost got a, 
a great war feel to it, of a battle of attrition. You know, the Germans aren't being replaced. They're being taken out. They're taking down as many bombers as they can. The desperate battles up in the cold blue. It's almost Hollywood-style statements. We're all going to die. Just get used to it. Accept it and you'll be fine. You know, it, it really is on a par with the Great War. I mean, it's it's a different mentality to Bomber Command who, who are going out not in a tight formation where they can see each other. They're, they're fighting a very different war and their attrition rate is high. But these guys are fighting it. They see the enemy. They see it in daylight. And they've got that mission count all the time. Will I get to through the mission? Will I get to the next mission? And I'm getting nearer to going home, whether it's 25, 30 or 35 missions they need to do, depending on where they are in the war. So, um, yes, yeah, so many of them will not come home. I mean, don't physically get back. Some of those bombers that come back in here, the, the villagers will see them in the circuit. They'll see them firing flares to say they've got wounded on board. They'll, they'll hear the crashes. They'll hear the explosions. Uh, so they will experience the war as spectators of what, what's happening to this bomb group here, the, their local bomb group. The Ruan mission, they all came back safe except for a slight injury to a couple of aircrew when a couple of pigeons hit the plexiglass uh, dome at the front of one of the, the B-17 bombers. And if we look at this window, at the top it says, keep the show on the road, bombs dropping from the sky. And at the bottom, where the two doves are, it says coming home. And it's about striking that balance, isn't it, mm. between doing the job and also getting home safely. Yes, it is. And, and um, American bombing doctrine is, is supposedly ethical. That's why they're going for precision bombing, because after the Versailles Treaty and the great waste, the carnage of the European War in 1418, that we, we won't do that. We, we're going to defend ourselves, defend our coastline with... Northern bomb site, precision bombing will hit the right target and we're not going to bomb cities, we're not going to bomb civilians. Ultimately, they'll have to because that's the reality of the Second World War. But uh, it really is phenomenal what they set out to achieve and it just seems, it's, it's like stereotypical American, no fear, we, we can do that. You know, because they, this doctrine that they've got about daylight precision bombing and, and targeting, precision targeting, taking out particular railways or fuel or whatever they're doing, but they're gonna they're gonna batter their way through with all these with their fortresses and their liberators and in tight formation. It's a it's a very different mentality of, and you have to wonder, is that because they didn't suffer, the way that everybody else did in the Great War that they're not averse to casualty loss, whereas the, the British and the Royal Air Force and the, and the Army and the Royal Navy are you know are definitely in the steel not flesh frame of mind. Let's not let's risk minimum life and let's not take casualties, but. And how much of it, as we'll find as we go through the podcast series, is down to hanging on, clinging on to that doctrine and proving it, or, or is it, or is it valid? And, you know, keep the show on the road. Yeah, showing bombs is, is yeah, we'll we'll fight our way through. We'll hit the target and we'll come back. And, and nobody's going to stop us. But it, and it will be the right target. We're not going to bomb innocent civilians because that's that's counter to our our perception of what war should be like in thirty nine forty five. Let's go back to the airfield then and discuss the strategy behind these uh, bombing raids, behind these missions, and look at uh, why Rouen is such uh, an important mission in World War II. You're listening to the Mighty Eights podcast with me, Johan Tasker, and military historian Mike Peters. We're at Grafton Underwood in Northamptonshire, eastern England, where the first American-led mission set off to bomb occupied Europe during World War II. That very first all-American mission took place on August 17, 1942, and it targeted the railway marshalling yards at Rouen, northern France, in broad daylight. 
Now we've returned to the airfield here at Grafton Underwood, walking along a concrete track to reach the operations room, the ops room, the briefing room. Now the very first ops room at the airfield here, where the 97th bomb group who flew that mission were briefed before they set off, has long gone. The original building stood next to the airfield watchtower, or the control tower, demolished some years ago. And what we have here, what we're standing in front of, is its 1943 replacement. A flat-roofed brick building typical of the ops rooms on many World War II airfields. And it has to be said, it's in a sorry state. A shell of a building, if you like, covered in graffiti, decaying brickwork, surrounded by weeds, piles of rubble and mounds of earth. But it is, at least, still standing. Mike, the ops room was the nerve centre of the whole operation. And this derelict building still has, very much, a sense of place. Yeah, I mean, you're right. I mean, it's certainly showing its age and it's been neglected for a long time, but the, the functionality of it is quite clear. It's, you know, the very few windows, the location on the airfield map, it's in that crossover point between the domestic site where people live, eat and sleep and then get into the work site where the, the hard standings are, where the aircraft are, the transition from being in domestic site, going through the briefing cycle, preparing for a mission, climbing onto your aircraft and taking off and off to your target and then coming back and then reverse, coming back through those briefing areas to debrief and tell the intelligence people what you've seen, how you've done against the target, where your bombs went, etc. And these, these buildings really are the linchpin of all of that planning and that command and control. And um, you know, this would be the building where the teleprinter would start tapping out the... Uh, you know, the night before or even very early hours in the morning before a mission and say the target for today is Berlin or Bremen or wherever it was going to be. And this would be the place where the lead navigator, the, the, the ops, op, main operations officer for the bomb group would be and would start to build the plan to, to tell people what fuel load they need to put on each aircraft, how many aircraft, what crews, what formation, who's going to be where. This is the brain of, of the bomb group. This is before they leave, before they take off. All that choreography orchestration whatever you want to call it it all emanates from here on different phone lines down to the squadrons out to the flight line out to the hard standings the engineers the caterers the you know the even the provost anybody it, it all comes from here and this is where the group commander will be with his close-in staff who make the decisions of how the mission will be shaped how the how the mission will be flown the brains of the whole operation then clearly yeah so it come down from 8th air force headquarters into the bomb group the warning order or the executive order as it's called the field the field order as you said the army roots of the army air force it's the field you get the field order which is the operational instruction for the mission of you know where the target is when you've got to hit it what height you're going to bomb at and all the rest and then you work back from that how much fuel you need what type of bombs when they need to be loaded, when the aircraft needs to be online and ready to go, when they start their engines, because you can't be sat out on the runway running your engines for an extra hour. You're burning fuel you're going to need over the target and to get you back. So it's all worked out to the minute, hopefully, in theory. And, of course, the thing we are going to talk about a lot in the whole series, the weather. The Met forecast is going to come into here. So that will, that will decide whether it's on or off, whether you can see the target, because precision daylight bombing is difficult through cloud at the start of the war. Uh, and it will always be a factor. So the weather will be a huge factor in all of this. And there were a couple of false starts before they finally got going on the 17th of August. Let's talk about the difference in strategies then between the British Royal Air Force and the US 
Army Air Force. The, the Americans, high altitude, precision bombing in daylight, whereas the RAF were bombing at night at a lower level and, and less precise. Less precise, heavier bomb loads. You know, the Lancaster is the main the mainstay of the bomber command with the Halifax and the Sterling. You know they, they were dropping much heavier loads of bombs over a, a, a wide reel. Let's be let's be honest about that. But uh, certainly, at the start of the war, the Germans, the German Luftwaffe and the British Royal Air Force are both going to bomb in daylight. Everyone's like, we're, we're going to bomb, we're going to hit the target, and there's some pretty wild claims about how accurate they can be. And then reality, the reality of flying into opposed airspace, the weather, all of these other factors really hit home, particularly for the RAF. You know, the British bombers haven't got the armament that the B-17's got. They're, they're carrying 303 machine guns rather than big heavy 50 calibers, and they're not trained and de- to fly that way. They're not designed to fly in close formation. And in the end, we, we just haven't got the bomb site to do what the Americans intend to do. So it rapidly becomes a matter of survival, maintaining a presence for the RAFs. Okay, we can bomb at night. As did the Luftwaffe at the end of the Battle of Britain. They switched to night blitzing because they couldn't survive against fighter command in contested airspace. The Americans come at it from a different perspective. Some might say a quite naive or simplistic view is, okay, we are we must precision bomb. We're going to spend a lot of money on the Northern bomb site so that we can hit the target. You know, the old euphemism about, yeah, you can drop it in a pickle barrel, you know. You, know, you, you can do that if you can see the target and you've got this bomb site, which is essentially a mini computer, which can calculate the drift and the bomb angle and et cetera for you and set all that up. But they, they say we're going to have to fight our way through there. In order to do that, we're going, to, we're going to have these combat boxes. We're going to fly in close formation. We're going to have interlocking arcs of fire between all of our aircraft. And we'll have so many machine guns that, you know, and a bomb group's got about 500 machine guns in a mass formation. That, and they're 50 calibre. They're heavyweight shells. They're not, not 303 like the RAF are using. That nobody is going to get near us. We don't need fighter escorts because the B-17 flies so high, so fast and so well armed. Its bomb load suffers correspondingly. The bomb load of a, a B-17 is equivalent to a light bomber. You've got a heavy bomber with a light bomb load. The Lancaster is a heavy bomber with an even heavier bomb load. It, it, you know, so it's different philosophies about how to go about this. But when Ica, Doolittle and Spatz and Hap Arnold and these people, you know, and I, I wouldn't call them a bomber mafia. I'd say they're, they're believers in what they're doing to varying degrees. I mean, Spatz is quite critical of Billy Mitchell's philosophy uh, along the way, but they all say we can do this. We can do this in daylight. We have the we have the we have the technology to use that phrase. So they arrive here with with that in mind, and um, they're going to maintain that through the war. And there are, don't get me wrong, there are times during the daylight campaign where it becomes is this tenable, and do we turn back? And later on, we'll talk about fighter escort and all the difference that that makes but um, there's a dichotomy between the two and certainly when they first arrive in UK in England Harris is saying you really really don't want to do this you're going to lose a lot of aircraft and of course the RAF have tried to fly the fortress with 90 squadron and suffered quite badly but they they helped to identify a lot of the faults of flying at altitude bad weather the icing up of guns and all those other things that saved the 8th Air Force a lot of pain along the way because they, they get all this back brief from the Air Force, Royal Air Force crews who've flown the fortress over Germany in small numbers. They've not really tried to do what the US Army Air Force believe in, this mass formation, these combat boxes. So in '42, everything seems possible. And that first road from here, when they all come back, says, hey, what's the fuss about? You know, Yankee Doodle's gone to town. We've, we've done it because that's what the... The aircraft's cool, you know, and Eek has flown on the mission himself and he's very keen 
to maintain close links with Bomber Command, but he doesn't want to get sucked into night bombing and being subordinate to them. The 8th Air Force is here to do its own thing in its own way. And they wanted to show that that could be done. They had something to prove. And ostensibly, from their point of view, that Ruan mission proved that they could do it. Yeah, I mean, the initial plan, they're quite realistic in their initial thought is we need to be battlefield inoculated. We need to fly some missions with the RAF. You know, don't forget that what will become the fighter groups, they can't fly the P-39 air Cobra. It's not good enough. They've got some P-38 lightnings, but they're being equipped with Spitfire Mark Vs and they're flying with the RAF. And fighter command are actually controlling the US Army Air Force fighter groups at this point in the war, the early start of the war. They're, they're taking part in that. And the edict is that we will commence daylight bombing operations within the range of RAF fighter command escort. That's the start. It will go beyond that very quickly, but at the start, it's okay. Let's build up some flying hours. Let's build up our credibility. Let's learn some lessons. Let's let's get go through the the whole cycle of what fuel to use, what bombs to use, how to fly, how to form it. Because you know, corralling all those aircraft and getting them all together in daylight, it might sound easy in daylight, but this is English daylight with cloud bases and weather changes, etc., and the same over the target. So they've got a lot to learn. They've they've done a lot of long navigational exercises across the United States and all that kind of thing. That's just a, this is a whole different ballgame. This is, as the American crest call it, this is the big league. So one of the pilots of the lead plane on this Ruan mission, Paul W. Tibbetts, he's something of a poster boy for the US Air Force. Yeah, he is, because Tibbetts, as most people know, will go on to fly the Enola Gay and drop the first atom bomb. So he's got a remarkable record. I mean, if you track back to all of these prominent people at the start of the US Army Air Force experience here in Europe. We've mentioned Ica, we've mentioned Spatz, we've mentioned Doolittle. These, these are the high rankers, but also Castle, Armstrong, people like that who come across. They come across as captains. And if you're going to grow an Air Force up to 60 groups in strength, you've got to find the experience from somewhere. So people are going to be pulled through and promoted very quickly. And um, Paul Tibbetts, he comes across, he's on that first raid, he's flying a, a Boston bomber, and he's been one of these pioneering pilots back in, in the States. So they're called Eka's amateurs because he also commissioned a lot of civilians who are experts in logistics and administration and all this. But, you know, America comes into the war late, as we know, but it's not unexpected. You know, even 1942, they've got about uh, 245,000 personnel across the air forces, 23,000 aircraft in existence. They're not all good aircraft. And it's interesting, when you get to the end of the war, they've got 2.4 million personnel and 24,000 aircraft. So the number of aircraft hasn't changed much. The quality has changed. And that expansion in numbers is logistics, technicians, backup, planning, etc. So if you're someone like Tibbetts and you start the war as a captain, you're going to get promoted. If you're, if you're good at what you do and you, and you survive, you're going to get promoted. Eisenhower is a great example himself. And he starts the war as a colonel, finishes as a five-star general. So... If you're going to grow and expand that quickly, anyone who's competent, anyone who can do what they're supposed to do and do it thoroughly and properly is going to get promoted. And there's something of symmetry then about Grafton Underwood. We saw earlier on from the war memorial that the first and the last bombs Mm. dropped by the 8th Air Force were dropped by planes that flew from here. And then you've got the whole American involvement in the air war is bookended by Paul Tibbetts, who pilots the plane that drops the first bombs on that Ruan mission, but also... Right at the end of the war, yeah. he pilots the plane that drops the atom bomb and on he, and Hiroshima. And because of Hiroshima, he's singled out for that. But there are other people who do the whole, I hate to use the word, journey, but survive the whole war, you know, the whole, all those years of combat. And, and people who 
do their complete number of missions and volunteer for more and come back you know or or transfer to fighters or, or whatever and, and you know let's not forget that there are so many bomb groups they start off with a target of 60 groups and 35 of them will be heavy bomb groups but there's going to be 16 american air forces across the world not one not two but 16 different air forces across the world it's a massive expansion a massive expansion and as paul tibbet said in his autobiography in the 995 days of air war against germany that followed the eighth air force would drop almost four and a half million bombs on europe plus more than 25 million incendiaries it came at a huge cost though the eights would lose more than 40,000 bomber crewmen killed or missing and an additional almost 2,000 very seriously wounded what we're going to do in this series, Mike, is look at was it worth it? How did it work? What was the cost? What was the benefits? And the stories of the people involved. Yeah, and I'm, I'm looking forward to that because, you know, it, it's a significant contribution to the outcome of the war. And it's a remarkable story. And it doesn't take anything away from the other aspects of the war. Everyone played their part. But it, the, the 8th Air Force is just a fascinating story. A fascinating story, Mike. Indeed, many, many fascinating stories. Look, it's been an absolutely amazing visit to Grafton Underwood, visiting the exact same place where it all started on August 17th, 1942. But for now, that's about it for this episode of the Mighty Eights podcast. Before we go, though, please do subscribe to us wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please, if you can, leave us a five-star review. It'll make the Mighty Eighth podcast easier for other people to find and it'll help us reach more listeners. We've got lots more episodes in the pipeline, lots more fascinating and remarkable stories about the Mighty Eighth. But for now, for military historian Mike Peters and me, Johan Tasker, thank you for listening and do please join us again next time as we continue to discover the people, the planes and the places of the United States 8th Army Air Force. So, there you go. The next Mighty Eighth episode is number two, and it's called Anatomy of a Mission. Just how do you put hundreds of B-17 flying fortresses into the sky, send them on a bombing mission over occupied Europe, and then bring them home again? I've already listened to it, and it's a cracker, and I cannot wait to hear the rest of the series. There's a link to the Mighty Eighth podcast website in the show notes and you can hear the pod there or in any listening app. I'm Paul Cheel saying bye-bye now. <laughs>